Welcome to the Integrative Ideas in Nutrition podcast. This podcast is produced by the Committee of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access through the Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine Practice Group with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Join us to explore a range of whole food therapies and mind-body modalities within different settings and cultures, and to celebrate the ways that our diversity in practice and perspective makes us stronger. Please keep in mind that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. I am Sarah Thompson Fajara, Registered Dietitian, Integrative and Functional Nutrition Certified Practitioner, and your host for this podcast. Lorena Drago, MSRD, CDN, CDE, is a registered dietitian, consultant, and certified diabetes care and education specialist. Lorena specializes in the multicultural aspects of diabetes self-management education and is an expert in developing culturally and ethnically oriented nutrition and diabetes education materials. She founded Hispanic Foodways, which received the New York City Small Business Award in 2006. She develops the NutriPortion measuring cups that has the calorie and carbohydrate amounts of common foods embossed on each cup, and the NutriPortion Hispanic food cards that have pictures and nutrition composition of comic Hispanic foods. Lorena served on the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, um, Board of Directors from 2006 to 2010, Chair for Latinos and Hispanics in Dietetics and Nutrition. She was past president of the Metropolitan New York Association of Diabetes Educators in 2004. Lorena won the Diabetic Living People's Choice Award in 2012, Latinos and Hispanics in Dietetics and Nutrition Trinco Award in 2016, and Diabetes Dietetics Practice Group Diabetes Educator of the Year Award in 2022. So accomplished. She is the author of the book, Beyond Rice and Beans, The Caribbean Guide to Eating Well with Diabetes, published by the American Diabetes Association. She is a contributing author and co-editor of the book, Cultural Food Practices, published by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and was print communications chair for the Diabetes Care and Education Specialty Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics from 2012 to 2000. 15. Lorena's new publication, 15-Minute Consultation, Tips, Tools, and Activities to Make Your Nutrition Counseling More Effective, was published in 2016 by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She serves on the editorial board of the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists in Practice in Diabetes Self-Management Magazine. Lorena has appeared on several national TV shows speaking about diabetes management. Lorena graduated cum laude from Hunter College of the City University of New York with a Master of Science degree in Food and Nutrition and received her bachelor's degree from Queens College. What an incredibly rich professional history. We're so glad to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us, Lorena. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, wonderful. Cannot wait to dive in. 
and hear more about your journey to becoming an RDN, to hear more about your perspectives around practice. I know this is going to be a gift to other nutrition professionals who are listening. So we've heard a little bit about your background here from your really incredible bio. You're clearly very accomplished and really dedicated to your work. How did this path begin for you? Tell us a bit about your journey to becoming an RDN. Yes. So I came from Colombia, uh, South America, right after I finished high school. And um, as soon as I graduated, I came to New York and I started to work. And soon after, I started college right away. So I just uh, took a few months right after graduation, which was in June. And in September, I started college. So first I wanted to be um, a doctor. So I started taking classes, uh, biology, chemistry, all the pre-med courses. But I took a course in nutrition. There was a nutrition department and I thought, oh, this would be so interesting. And, um, and I was sold. I said, I wanted to be a dietitian. And uh, little did I know then, I was only 17 when I graduated high school, that I needed to complete so many science classes. So all those courses that I was taking for pre-med um, were necessary for my nutrition degree. So it was not for naught. So I still needed to take chemistry. I still needed to take biology. So that's what uh, I needed to do. So I just also wanted to add that even though I had come from Colombia and Spanish is my native uh, tongue, I had gone to a bilingual school all my life. So I spoke English when I came to the United States and I had graduated with both a Colombian uh, high school diploma and an American diploma. So that was very advantageous um, for me because I was able to start college right away. I didn't have to delay uh, when I came here. So then I found nutrition. I said goodbye to pre-med and that's how I uh, completed my degree in nutrition. So right after that, um, I started my master's degree, and then I had to do a dietetic internship, which I did. And right after I completed that, I took the RD exam, and then the rest is history. The rest is history. When you um, walked into or were taking that first nutrition class, did you have any sense that it would lead you to where you are today? 
Uh, no. Um, when, when I became a dietitian, the paths were very limited, I would say. Um, and, and I don't think that they were limited because anyone said to me, well, these are the only things that you could do. Um, I had a group of friends who uh, I was part of the nutrition club. And, we, and I recall that we were very active and I was very active. And I recall at the time that we had invited a dietitian who worked for Family Circle magazine. And we invited her to talk to us about her job. And I recall being, probably I was 19 years old at the time. I don't even think I was 20. Um, and I thought, wow, she, she is a dietitian that works for a magazine and she writes for a magazine. And I thought, that's so glamorous. Like she, she, she's not working uh, in a clinic. She's not working in an outpatient um, uh, job or at a hospital or in a school setting. She works for a magazine. And I just kind of like saw this glamorous type of job and I just envisioned something completely different. So I think that was the first time that I envisioned that you could do something with dietetics that was not in a school setting, that was not in a clinic or in a hospital, that there was something different. And, um, and also in a food setting that was not in an institution, that you could work at an airport, for example. Um, and I started to think, what could you do that it's different? Maybe not necessarily glamorous, but something that was different. And I think that that's when I started to think, I too could one day do something that it's different. Mm -hmm. Just planted that seed. Yes. And, in, and indeed, it seems like you really have paved your own unique path forward. Yes. So, so give us, so how long has it been that you've been a dietitian now? How many years? Um, gosh, I am, I am, uh, I have, I have been a dietitian. Let's see. Oh my God. Like for a million years. <laughs> um, my gosh, for how long has it been? Has it been like 30 something years? Mm -hmm. Has it been? Uh, okay. I, I'm going to need a okay. calculator here. <laughs> and now, forget about a calculator. I'm going to need an abacus. Uh, so, 30, at least 30 years uh, over that at this uh, point. No, more than that. Wow. Uh, I'm telling you the truth. I am going to need an abacus because I started working as soon as I had my bachelor's degree. And, um, and then I did my master's while I was working. And I graduated from high school at 17. I had just turned 17 when I graduated. And I did it in four years because I, I did it very 
I mean, most people now do it in four and a half years or five years. I did it. I knew that I was going to do it in four years. So I just turned 21 when I had my bachelor's in nutrition. Um, but then I was, I had to do my master's at that time. And then I did my, uh, my dietetic internship and I worked because I had to save money in order to, to do the uh, internship. Uh, so I think I was 23 when I had my, uh, my RD exam. Um, so yeah, that was about um, 35 years ago. 35 years. Yeah. So over the, wow, wow. So over the course of yes, 35 yes, years. You, I have the abacus. I have it right here next to me. That is really something. So, you know, I'd love to hear a bit about where, you know, where the path has, has brought you at this moment, you know, talk to us a bit about what your day-to-day -day looks like. How has your work evolved? And then also would love to hear about some of the milestones along the way. What are some of the accomplishments, contributions, turning points that you feel like have really marked your journey or marked your path or have been, you know, decision points for you, so to speak? Yeah, well, I I never stopped climbing. And I think that that's something that I want dietitians to know. Um, it is something that I, uh, I think I'm deviating, but I think it is important for, for uh, dietetic professionals to know. I often see in the dietetic world, um, especially in social media, and I belong to um, whether is, you know, many different channels, so I'm not going to, to name them, but I, I do hear many times when I feel, when I see that many dietetic professionals feel that they have a ceiling. Um, and I want them to know that they need to bring um, a hatchet to break that ceiling. Because for me, there was no ceiling. And um, and the reason that there was no ceiling was because I never thought that there was one. What, what I always did was always try to find a way to climb higher. I always tried to find a stool or a ladder that could take me where I needed to go to reach what I wanted. And I always tried to see what tools I needed to where I needed to go. And sometimes that tool was in the form of uh, a friend, a colleague, a course. Sometimes that tool meant that I needed to learn something. Sometimes it meant that I needed to pause. Sometimes that tool meant that I needed to say yes several times. 
Sometimes it meant that I needed to work harder and much harder than the next person. And I had to always move forward. And it was always on me. I needed to do that. And sometimes I needed to think. Um, and again, sometimes I needed to pause. And I needed to say, is this the right way? And sometimes I needed to find another way. What I find many times is that people are waiting for others to make the path for them. Sometimes they feel that, that they don't have the tools, meaning that they cannot move forward instead of finding the tools that they need or waiting for others to give them the tools. And sometimes they might need others to, wait, to give them the tools, but they need to ask and they need to know what to ask for. So um, that's what led me to, to, to where I am. So that's my advice. And, um, and I feel that there wasn't anything that was very special. I don't think that, that it was a matter of, well, these things were given to me because I was so special. Not at all. I just think that I just was persistent. And, and I just kept moving forward. And I think that, that that is my advice. So when I started my, my job as a dietitian, then I started first in food service because that was the job, the first job that was available to me. I did not like it. I disliked it immensely. And I started to look for another position, which led me into a WIC position. That WIC position, I went from dietitian to supervising dietitian, and then I moved into public health, and then I just became the WIC director. From that position, I moved into diabetes education. I worked several jobs. I went from that job into private practice. Um, and I had several jobs. And I worked very hard to learn another skill. And I continued this self-learning. And I became active in different organizations and whatever whatever became available i always kept saying yes and i started writing and i kept becoming active and people started to see that i was invested i work a lot yes did i work all the time yes but then that's what i needed to do and then later on, I became a healthcare administrator and I kept learning. And then after that, I moved on to another hospital. And then I 
I became a uh, a bariatric um, administrator, and then after that, I became I I started overseeing the surgical outpatient and inpatient uh, outpatient surgical departments, and I started learning about everything that was related to surgery. So the point is that they are opportunities and you have to take them so that you can start learning and then the salary starts to increase. And then there were opportunities about writing and writing books. Um, and also I started to see in terms of uh, what what became something that was very important to me was that I, as a Hispanic professional, I started to see that there was a need for other dietitians to learn about Hispanic cultures. Um, they, the Hispanic subgroups um, that live in the United States, um, there are a higher percentage of chronic conditions, including diabetes is one of them. And there are going to be many non-Hispanic dietitians that are going to take care of Hispanic clients or patients. And um, when you become knowledgeable about Hispanic foods, habits, and cultures, you are going to be able to connect better to that patient. And when you connect better to the patient, then that means that there will be uh, a better um, outcome for that person. And there's going to be then a, an improvement uh, for that patient. So I felt that this was a gap that existed and that I could provide, I could help to bridge that gap in knowledge and skills. So I started first with the book and then I felt that the training had to follow. So that's where I wanted to devote myself uh, and meet that need. Was there a, a defining moment that triggered you to realize that that gap was present? Or was it just a combination of observations that you'd had over the years? How did that come to pass? I think I knew from the moment that I came to New York. I was watching TV when I first came. I was watching TV in Spanish. And there was a commercial. The commercial was uh, orange juice. And it was in Spanish. And I saw someone pouring the orange juice in Spanish. 
the commercial, instead of um, saying naranja, which is orange in Spanish, the person said China, which translated into China. They kept saying China, 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 Jews of China, Jews of China. And in my 17-year-old head, I kept saying, why aren't they saying Hugo, Jews of Naranja, orange juice? Why do they keep saying China Jews? Later on, in my head, my explanation was, hmm, maybe the Americans are importing the oranges from China. <laughs> and this is probably the reason why they keep mentioning this. Maybe mm. this maybe this is the magic. Right, trying to make sense of it, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So later on, I found out that Puerto Ricans and Dominicans call oranges chinas. And then I'm like, oh, now this makes sense. So now I spoke Spanish. So this was not a language barrier. This was a cultural barrier. So here I was, a Colombian who spoke Spanish, understood Spanish, wrote Spanish, uh, read Spanish, and here I was lost in translation. And those things kept happening to me. I kept having all these barriers when I kept talking to people in Spanish who were not Colombians. And I kept meeting Colombians from other cities in Colombia, still kept having these barriers. If people were not from the coast, I kept having these barriers. I was lost in translation. So then I knew that I needed to, to find a way to communicate better. So if we were having patience, then every time that I would meet with other nutrition students or any students at Queens College, which New York is this city with all these immigrants, we would start comparing. So how do you say this in Spanish in Peru or in Ecuador or in Mexico? And we would die laughing. It became my mission to start gathering all this names and words and expressions and beliefs because I knew someday, somehow, this was going to be useful. Because if it was useful to me, it was going to be useful to other people. We were all speaking in Spanish, but it was going to be useful to other people. Mm-hmm. And now you're spending quite a bit of your time with training and educating other nutrition professionals. Is that right? In your day-to-day work? Yes. Yeah. I spend time doing that. I also, uh, now that I am not 
working in a hospital anymore. I decided to uh, become a consultant. I spent a lot of time writing for consumer uh, and professional publications. Um, as you know, I'm a food editor for um, for ADCS in practice. I also write, I'm a food editor for diabetes self-management. And I also um, still see patients um, with diabetes only exclusively for a person with diabetes, uh, pre-diabetes, cardiometabolic um, uh, problems. And then I focus my time working uh, for, for pharmaceutical companies and food companies, et cetera. And then of course, teaching healthcare professionals about Hispanic cultures and how to counsel Hispanics effectively. Mm -hmm. So when you're having those conversations, how do you describe some of the distinguishing characteristics of Hispanic food cultures? How do you begin that conversation around some of the you know characteristics within those subgroups or different areas, whoever you would describe or define them? Yes. Well, um, overall, um, I just, first of all, uh, there are 23 different uh, countries except for Puerto Rico, which Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. So from all those different countries, Puerto Rico is the only one, which is a territory, and Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, so they are the only ones um, that are US citizens, the other ones are not, um, that speak Spanish. So um, Mexico, which is in North America, and then six in Central America, nine in South America, and then two, the, uh, the Dominican Republic and Cuba in the Caribbean that speak Spanish. So we are united, even though I'm talking about all the different words, we are united by the Spanish language, but we do have differences in some of our expression, in some of our words, and, and definitely broad cultural similarities. But each segment has its own culinary habits and definitely traditions. We are not homogeneous. Furthermore, in our own countries, we are not homogeneous either. So, um, for example, in Colombia, we have uh, eight distinct regions. So, as I was mentioning before, I am from the Caribbean coast. We have two coasts. We have the Caribbean coast, which is the Atlantic, and we have the Pacific coast. We have different music. We have different um, music and dances. We have different foods, different names of the foods. And we also have different climates, etc. So there may be certain foods and expressions. And someone might say, in Colombia, we do this. But you may ask me and I can say, I have no idea what this food may be or this dish might be because I am from another region. The same thing happens in Mexico, same thing happens in Guatemala, etc. So 
when you hear people say in Mexico or Hispanics do this, you need to ask the person, where are you from? Uh, and because that is, you start, you need to start uh, really digging into what do you mean by Hispanics do that? Where are you from? Are you, uh, are you from Guatemala or are you referring to people in El Salvador or what part from El Salvador? So, and, and I know that many of us will say Hispanics, etc. So when it comes to foods, I would say that the staples in general would be legumes. I think that uh, in general, all those 23, 22 countries and one territory will probably use legumes, different types of legumes, including some legumes that may not be as well known um, in the United States. Corn and corn byproducts, uh, potatoes more so in South America than in other regions, avocados, um, tomatoes, cilantro, and rice, more in some regions than others. So I think that that might be some of the staples in, um, in, in general. Now, certain regions um, will have their different staples um, than, you know, compared to others. Sure, sure. Um, do you have a few examples you could share with us? Any specific dishes, oh, um, ingredients, meaning? Absolutely. Just kind of paint that picture for us. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I am going to start with um, with Mexico because Mex at 62%, if not more, of all Hispanics um, have a Mexican ancestry. Um, whether they were here uh, from before uh, or if they just arrived a few months ago. Now, Mexico has nine distinct regions. And I just wanted to mention that because um, I wanted to also make the difference between Tex-Mex is not Mexican cuisine. And the distinct regions in Mexico uh, also are very, very different. So I, I want to talk about the northern part of Mexico. And the northern part of Mexico is the region in which it's where you, where you find the cattle of Mexico. And that's where you're going to find more of the dairy, more of the meats, and where you're going to find more of the flour tortillas not so much the corn tortillas. Are you gonna find the different types of cheese in Mexico, especially the queso fresco? Um, there is the dry beef, the skirt steak of Mexico, where you're going to find the baby goat. You're going to find it in the north of Mexico. And 
you're going to find a dish that it's called capirotada, which is like similar to a bread pudding that it's made with a type of bread that is called bolillo. Um, and it's prepared with sugar, spices, dried fruits, and nuts. So that's the northern part of Mexico. So that's kind of, uh, again, the beef, that's the cheese, and that's where you find that bread pudding. So now let's go to Oaxaca, um, and that's spelled O-A-X-A-C-A. And that is the mountains and the valley of Mexico. So that the cuisine in Oaxaca is very different from the cuisine in the north of Mexico. Um, this is more in the south, in the Pacific. And what you're going to find there is cuisine that it's very tied to two indigenous groups of Mexico, which are the, the Mixtec and the Zapotec culture, those two indigenous groups. So now corn is the staple and corn tortillas are the staple. So I want to point to the nixtamalization of corn tortilla and how important that is to Mexican cuisine and also the nutrition of the Mexican, um, to Mexicans in general. So the nixtamalization is a process in which when corn is picked and the corn lime is added to the corn, that mixing of the lime with the corn it's when the calcium and the niacin is, is now much more present in the corn. So that's where the calcium is increased in the corn during this process of nixtamalization. So when the corn now, it's the corn masa, um, is is created so then after that uh, the the corn and the lime when that is rested is usually rested and then it's washed and when the corn is is ground um, you have uh, this dough this corn masa that it's formed into tortillas and. In Oaxaca, the tortillas are mixed with beans and the beans are very popular and also the squashes are popular. So there is this combination of corn with beans, squashes, tomato. So it's pretty a very healthy diet in Oaxaca. And another thing that it's also made is the mole and the different types of mole in Oaxaca. The black mole, the yellow mole, the pink one, and there is the empanadas, um, the different types of tamales um, in Oaxaca. And there is a dish 
that is called Tlayudas, which is the Oaxacan pizza, which is made out with this big, big tortilla, and they add different types of vegetables and also cheese. Um, so, and the mezcal, which is a beverage uh, with agave, all that is part of Oaxacan um, cuisine. So that's just two examples, Sarah, of two different, different places in Mexico. And look at the difference between one state and the food and another state which has different um, uh, foods, different regions, and they are nine distinct regions. So when one person has comes from Mexico, um, you, you need to know where did they come from? And that's if they're coming just from Mexico, because it could be someone that their ancestry could date back uh, decades, decades, and they may not even speak Spanish anymore. They may only speak English. Or you can have someone that can speak Spanish as a second language uh, because they may speak Mixteco or Zapoteco, uh, some of the indigenous languages. Um, so it's it's very important to, to know where the person comes from and what are some of the languages uh, or that they speak, how long they have been in the country, um, and, and they might only speak English. They might not even speak Spanish. They may be fourth generation, fifth generation from Mexico, and um, they may eat tortillas, but they may speak English only. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing a theme from you that we shouldn't be making assumptions. <laughs> that is coming out as a theme. That is, sure. that is completely correct. Yeah. Because yeah. we never know. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so so you've spoken to this a little bit, but tell us more about some of the challenges that you see when it comes to counseling Hispanic patients. And you know, I know you've done quite a bit of work around this. So what are some strategies that you recommend for nutrition professionals to begin to work through these challenges, whether it's in their own training, just, you know, in general or working individually one-on-one -on -one with their patients? Well, the first one is don't assume that your Hispanic patient is from Mexico. Uh, remember, there are many of us and we come from different places. So I think that the first step is never to assume that we come from a certain place. Um, for example, I attended a conference. Um, I think I attended a conference two months ago and, um, and I was talking to someone about, uh, I think I was telling the person that I was Hispanic and um, and she mentioned some work that she was doing with Hispanics, and she told me something about tortillas. I can't recall exactly what it was, uh, and she said about um, something about 
me about me eating tortillas and so two two issues there number one she assumed that i ate tortillas i don't eat tortillas unless i go to a mexican restaurant um because colombians do not eat tortillas hmm. unless they go to a mexican restaurant <laughs> 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 um number two the word tortilla and that that is um the word tortilla has different meanings so so that's also something else that i just wanted to to um to also add now was there an issue with that absolutely not was i offended absolutely not and i feel that's also another thing about people becoming offended because of those things no people don't know and you don't know what you don't know so so this is this is something that uh this is the reason why uh these conversations are so important if if most of the time you meet someone who is hispanic and they happen to be from mexico your assumption is that most people are going to come from mexico end of story so when you start to learn then then you say oh my gosh then you know most people from central america for example this the the largest the largest hispanic subgroups or the individuals that are living in the United States come from Mexico, Honduras, I'm sorry, uh, El Salvador and Guatemala. And those three countries eat tortillas. Therefore, it's not uh, uncommon to think that I would eat tortillas. It's a common assumption. Um, however, People, the other regions that also live in the United States, the other three regions are Caribbean Hispanics, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans. Once you leave Central America, the tortilla, which is the round disc, whether it's made of flour or corn, disappear. Caribbean Hispanics will not have tortillas. Um, again, that disappears. S South America, the tortilla disappears. What Colombians and Venezuelans, which are the two countries that are north in South America, um, what we eat are corn yes we do eat corn and corn products i always feel that colombians are the children of the corn because of the amount of corn that we consume and venezuelans too we eat arepas but arepas are not are not tortillas they are made with a different type of masa or dough but they are not tortillas and we don't eat them like Mexicans and Central Americans eat. When you start going south from Central America into South America, 
the tortilla becomes less important. And then once you reach Panama, then it pretty much disappears. And the reason is that Panama used to belong to Colombia. So that's when that disappears. And then corn and arepa and empanadas, they are made out of corn, but a different type of corn. Mm, it's not mixtamalized mm-hmm. anymore. Hmm. Um, so again, the challenges, going back to the challenges, I would definitely would want to know the heritage of the person. And I would pose the question is simply because a good way to ask the question would be, tell me about you. I think asking the question, tell me about you, it's a good way to have the person share a little bit of the person's background. What is your background? And the reason is that you can pose the question, I would like to know what your background is so that I can get an idea about the foods and your cultural heritage so that I can get an idea of what foods you enjoy and what are some of the cultural foods that you that you grew up with so that we can... Um, do some meal planning that it's that it's to your liking who doesn't want to talk about their cultural traditional foods so posting it in that manner does wonders to make that connection everyone wants to talk about the food of their childhood that food that that evokes the joy um of of their childhood that connects to to happy moments to uh, to tradition to foods that connect them to festivities whether they are religious or any other kind of festivities so I would I would certainly do that I would want to know how do you call this food where you come from how is it prepared um what else do you eat this with? The reason for that is if someone says, I usually have a snack um, or I usually have coffee at three o'clock. Many individuals in certain Hispanic countries will have coffee at three o'clock and many times they eat, they drink coffee and they eat it with something sweet, but they are not going to tell you They're just going to say, I have coffee at three. If you don't ask, what else do you have with your coffee? They are not going to tell you. There's also something else. How you call a dish in one place may not be the same way you call that dish in some place else. Let me tell you, for example, in Mexico, a banana it's called platano but in the caribbean and in other countries in south america platano is plantain so if you have someone that it's translating for you and that person says 
I eat plátano and I say to you, I eat plátano and that person that is translating is from Mexico, you're going to think based on that person translating that this person is eating a banana when that person is eating a plantain or vice versa. So if you are counseling someone who has diabetes, you may think that's 45 grams of carbs versus 30 grams of carbs or 50 grams of carbs versus 30 grams of carbs. And if this person is using insulin and you are doing an insulin to carb ratio, you're either going to have too little insulin or too much insulin. So that's when those things really need to be accurate. So um, you may want to say, what does this mean to you? Same thing with a tortilla. If you, when I first came to this country, tortilla for me was an omelet. It was not a round tortilla. So those may be some of the challenges, but if you know where that person is from, um, then that may be even helpful if you have to use an interpreter. You may want to say this person is from Mexico or this person is from Colombia, because then this way you may know, oh, this person is using uh, this word and this word in Mexico means uh, an omelet versus this means a round disc made out of corn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can imagine that using pictures or images can be a helpful tool as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pulling and those sometimes up and even understanding uh, that recommendations, if, if you know that someone um, in understanding the health beliefs of someone, uh, for most Hispanics, changes that only affect one person in the family may not be something that they are going to do because they're thinking of the entire family. So if it's something that the entire family is not going to accept, they may not be as quickly to make the change if the whole family is not accepting of the change because the entire family is much more important than just one person. So that is important um, to, you know, to take into consideration. So I would say, tell me about you. Um, what are some of your cultural foods? Um, where are you from? And to explain the reason why you're asking the question, the reason is, is that you want to know that if you request an interpreter, you want to make sure that you may be using the correct questions. Um, is, I'm sorry, the correct words, um, because you may be using incorrect words. And, and you may say, well, I know that in Mexico we call um, beans, frijoles, but if you are from the Caribbean, 
from Puerto Rico or Mexico, I'm sorry, Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic, you call them habichuelas. And um, habichuelas in other places are green beans. So you want to make sure that, that you are eliciting the correct words. So you've named, you know, a number of benefits, um, you know, for us uh, in investing in understanding who we're working with, their background. I'm hearing better connection with the patient, that they may be more likely to actually move forward with change. Thinking about the family um, dynamic, you mentioned concerns or issues around safety potentially, right? With the medication management, effectiveness of medication management. Anything else you would add to that in terms of benefits for the, the relationship, um, you know, nutrition professional client relationship or, or for us as professionals? Yeah, I think that um, that that connection when when someone um, a patient or a client sees that that you're trying to make you're trying to make that connection. You're trying to enhance the communication. You're asking the questions about what is your goal, uh, or perhaps that is a very difficult question. What is your goal? But perhaps asking the questions. Um, what would you like? Um, what would you like to? What questions would you like to ask? What are some of the things that concern you that I that I can do for you? What are some of the problems that I can help you with? I think that that are some of the things that will definitely connect you. And I keep using the word connect. Even if you don't speak Spanish, even if your client or patient is a male and you happen to be a female, um, and even if you're not Hispanic. Um, so I think that is that connection when when that person sees and feels that that you are trying to to listen to understand and to help uh, get to to the core of of that problem and offer the solutions I think that is when the connection is made. Mm -hmm. I think you've offered some really, really practical and impactful, you know, strategies and ideas for yes. walking through this process. I mean, I, yes. I can appreciate how yes. intimidating it can yes. be, right? But it sounds like it's it's really just about being open. Um, being humble, being willing to learn, always asking questions and just, yeah, always um, being willing to not know, right? And, yeah. yeah. I, 
I attended a conference. It was a diabetes um, conference um, that, that explained it beautifully. Um, I know that many times we, we hear and we see that, that when it comes to statistics, at least the one, and I think it was from, from 2020, that Hispanic um, registered dietitians, that only 6% of Hispanic um, in 2020, I think it was, yes, in 2020, that 6% of RDs are um, of Hispanic ethnicities. And, and I understand that one of the goals is to, to increase that number. So I, I attended this conference and, and there was one of the speakers was a physician. He was uh, African-American. And the, the conference, he was talking about um, equitable solutions in, in patient-centered teams. And I think that it's, the numbers are very similar when it comes to other healthcare professionals. So he said that the evidence on concordance is nuanced when it comes to healthcare professionals and patients. And, and he said that there is inconclusive evidence to support the patient-provider race concordance um, and the association with positive health outcomes for racial ethnic minority groups, okay? So he said that the communication rated as more collaborative in race discordant relationships is associated with better adherence. Uh, while communication rated as less collaborative is associated with poor adherence. But there is no significant association between adherence and communication in race-concordant relationships, okay? So experimental studies suggest that race and sex discordant providers practicing empathy, collaborative communication, and self-disclosure can build similar levels of trust as concordant providers. So, what, what that tells me is that even though in an ideal world, um, race concordant, ethnic concordance will be probably wonderful, in the real world, it's not feasible mm -hmm. to just have everything concordant, patient provider all the time. Sure. All yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. It will be impossible because um, it's just not feasible. You're going to have individuals from um, gender discordant all the time. And uh, I may have someone who is from Mexico. Are we going to have it from the same 
from the same country? Are we going to have it from the same region? I mean, it's, it's going to be impossible. But what I felt was interesting was what he said at the end, which was that, that the, even when it is discordant, that the ones that practice empathy, the ones that had collaborative communication and, and self-disclosure can build the same as concordant providers, can have the same relationship. So that tells me because I, I mean, I am just N of one, of course, but um, I can have a good relationship with a provider that listens to me, a provider that I have a relationship that has empathy, that gives me the time and that can connect with me, that has a good communication with me. And I hear most individuals that have a problem with their provider, that is race or ethnic discordant, are individual when they do not feel heard. They are not talking about, well, they do not speak my language. Yes, that might be a problem, but it's, it's when they do not feel heard, much more so. So I, I do feel that, that there is, um, when someone doesn't feel heard, it's, it's different than when someone does not speak their language. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as we're, as we're coming to a close, do you have any final more? I'm sure you have many more, but any, any more, you know, examples that you want to share or suggestions you want to share of ways that nutrition professionals can connect with clients whose cultural context is different than, than their own. Anything yes. else that feels important? Yes. Uh, very short. Learn about your patient's food, um, and that includes food preparation, culture, health beliefs, and practices. Learn about their dishes, how they are prepared, and what foods are consumed in health and disease. Mm. I was like, that could make a really, for a really rich conversation during a counseling session. Love the way that you frame them. So um, is there a some kind of a, a quote or a poem, song lyric, anything that feels meaningful to you that you'd like to use to close our time? Yes, this is my favorite and I always use it. And then I I modified it. Um in, it's in Spanish, and then I will translate it, and I'll tell you the one that I modified it to. It's very short. In Spanish, it's called Barriga Llena, Corazón Contento, and which means a full belly, um, happy heart. Um, I didn't want people to have a full belly because many times a full belly hurts. 
So I changed it every time I would give a presentation. I changed it to a satisfied belly, a happy and healthy heart. So it's just to, to just, uh, just made it that we just need to have a belly that is satisfied with the food, whatever that food is, and to have a happy heart um, and to just make it happy and healthy, which people health, but to also have a joyous heart. Oh, wow. Well, this has been really, really incredible. I know that those who are listening are going to benefit tremendously. Um, if interest has been piqued, where can where can we find you? You know, to be able to follow your work and to learn more about these types of approaches. Um, at in Instagram at uh, Lorena uh, Lorena Drago MSRD. And uh, my website, I have a blog uh, on my website. It has information there. It's lorenadrago.com. Wonderful. We can link those so folks can access those. And just want to end with a note of gratitude for you. And thank you for everything that you've shared here with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. For more information about evidence-based resources in integrative, holistic, and functional medicine, visit the Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine website at integrativerd.org. If you have enjoyed this episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast app to continue learning about diversity and nutrition practice and perspectives.